Welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and I am ridiculously excited because the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is actually, I think it's fair to say, a real life legend. In fact, he's so popular with children and adults for that matter everywhere that he has an entire month dedicated to him every year. Yep, February 2021 is Michael Morpurgo month. And there are loads of ways schools can get involved in the adventure with exclusive cross-curricular resources for Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 1, discussion guides and loads more, including a special Morpurgo month book club with fantastic prizes on offer for the best reviews. Teachers, you can find out which books are being featured this year and sign up for free at michaelmorpurgo.com forward slash month. All in all, it's going to be a brilliant celebration of the man who is so rightly known as the nation's favourite storyteller. And that man is here himself right now. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Helen. What a wonderful introduction. I'm now going to proceed to disappoint everyone, but there we are. <laughs> Thank you very much. And it was a wonderful roll of drums. <laughs> Michael, you've written so many books, so many different kinds of books. I would be really surprised if anyone listening right now hasn't read at least one of your books or part of one of your books. Perhaps it was Kensuke's Kingdom or The Butterfly Lion, Private Peaceful. I suppose then what I'd like to ask you first is where do all those books start? What what makes you decide to write this book rather than that book? Um it's always some kind of truth, something that's happened to me, so the, the truth of memory. That's very, very important to me. It's important to most writers, I think. Um, then it's something I've discovered, something someone I've met, a story that I've heard. Um, it, it always comes from, how shall I say, some, something that is real. What I don't do is sit in a room and conjure things up. I'm not that kind of a writer. Um, I tell you, I tell you the thing, really. There's a, a wonderful book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Of course. Well, I would have been able to write that absolutely fine until the moment where you're in the cupboard and you walk through the back of the cupboard into this Narnia place. <laughs> That's the bit I can never do because when I walk through the back of a cupboard, there's a wall. I presume you've tried. I've tried. And, and actually, I need the truth of the reality around me. And that's really where all my stories go from. So it's history, so other people's history, other countries' history, and particularly, I have to say, it's places. I think it's places that trigger. It may be where I go on holiday to the Isles of Scilly, um, which I do every single year except this last year when we couldn't go anywhere. Or it could be outside my window here in Devon, where I am at the moment, which is where I lived for the last probably nearly 50 years. So I know the, all the fields around here and the woods and the river and the birds and the fish and the whole, I just know the place intimately. So I grow these stories out of what I know or what I discover. And I suppose what that tells us is, is something that we all know deep down inside, which is that the world around us is full of stories, stories just waiting to, to grow and, and to be told. Yes, I think that's true. And I feel quite passionately stories that must be told. Yes. Even if they're uncomfortable stories. Um, I think 
We do have a tendency sometimes for children to think, but they just want happy stories. Well, of course they do. We want happy stories. I want happy stories. Sadly, sadly, as we are learning at the moment, the world is not an entirely happy place. Stuff goes on which is a bit difficult. And I think it's wrong and patronising to write uh, down to children. You have to, as a writer, tell your story about the world as you see it and hope that this is something that will interest children. Um, the reason I think it might for me is that I tend to tell my stories very often through the eyes of a young hero or heroine yeah. or an animal. Um, so there's some way that I funnel the stories through young people. Why? Because I was young once. This will surprise people. I really, really was. And when I grew up quite young, I became a father, so I had children of my own. I became a teacher, so I spent my day teaching children. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, there were grandchildren. And surprise, surprise, there were great-grandchildren. So children have been part of my life all my life. And I've, I think that's what I sort of, I, I'm able to sort of have, have roots, if you like, in the lives of children. And so I tend to tell my stories through their eyes, through their hearts, through their ears. And there's the connection, isn't there? There's, there's a real connection between children and, and the books that you write. And we could talk all day about any of the books that, that you've written, but if it's okay, I'd like us to concentrate today on one in particular, which is Boy Giant, Son of Gulliver. Yes. I think is the, the most recent book of yours to come out in paperback. I think so, yeah. And it, Oh, it is just, it's such a, a beautiful, loving, hopeful book. I mean, it's just exactly what the world needs at the moment. Where did the idea for that come from? Which real story are you telling there? Well, I'm glad you said that because it's supposed to be a hopeful book. I think it is a hopeful book. But it comes from something where there seems to be very little hope for an awful lot of children. Yes. I think we know at the moment that there are migrant families, migrant people moving around the world, escaping from war and suffering and disease and lack of work. They're just moving around the world. And where are they coming? They're coming towards us. Uh, because through social media or whatever, they have thought they have thought this is Shangri-La. This is the place. This is a place where you can be happy. There is safety. There are no bombs. There is work. All these things. So they, they know this dream is out there somewhere for them. So they travel. And what happens, sadly, sadly, and they cannot imagine what these journeys are like. Seven, eight, ten thousand miles on foot, in coaches, in vans, in trains, clambering onto anything they can get, and finally onto a boat, because we're an island. They've got to get in a boat some way or other. And they get in these uh, tiny, tiny little rubber boats, wretched people who take their money and put them on these boats and push them out into the channel. Now they've got to cross the English Channel and get here, and we know what happens to many of them. Well, I've been living with this situation. We've all been living with this situation, and it hurts me. It really hurts me physically when I see, and which we do see, um, children are drowning in, the, in these things and they're abandoned and many of them on there and I've met some of these children. I went to a place called Calais in France where a few years ago they were gathered, 3,000 in a sort of tented town um, and they were just waiting to come across the English Channel to get to this country and they tried and they tried and they tried and I went to see them. I went to see what life was like there because I'd heard about it and I remember sitting in a tent, one of these awful tents in this squalid, squalid place with about 15 boys from Afghanistan. I couldn't speak to them. I didn't have their language. They didn't have much of my language. So do you know what we did? We sang songs. They sang me their songs. And what were the songs all about? They were about hope and home. It's about their family, about the hills they grew up in, the villages they lived in. And then there was this silence in this tent and we were all linking arms. I remember it really, really well. And there was a silence and I thought, Michael, you've got to sing something, you know. 
You can't just sit here like a lemon. You've got to sing stuff. <laughs> so I sang them a song. I sang a song called Barleycorn from the play of Warhorse, um, which the folk songs I know over and I sang it. Uh, and they listened and they clapped, just as we clapped theirs. And there was this moment of solidarity, I felt. I felt terrific solidarity with these people. And so I thought, I must, must. I've written already a book called Shadow, which was uh, about a boy leaving Afghanistan and coming back to uh, this country. But I thought, I somehow have to go back to the story and tell it if I can more powerfully. And I'd been asked by my publisher to do a retelling of any story I wanted, which isn't read much, one of our great classics. And there's one called Gulliver's Travels, which some people will know, some people won't. Most people, I think, won't because it's not read much. This is because it was written a long, long, long time ago by a man called Jonathan Swift. And he wrote in a kind of language which young people, indeed old people like me, don't understand that well. It's a bit strange. So I thought, tell it again, tell it again. That's a really good story. It's about Lilliput. It's about this sailor that is washed up off a wreck and onto a shore and finds himself lying on this beach and he can't get up. And he doesn't know why he can't get up. He's lying on this sand and he can't move and he's, he's pegged to the ground. And there's hundreds of little people crawling all over him, pegging him down. And these are the people of Lilliput, Lilliputians. And it's a wonderful story. It is. But here's the thing. It's not actually a children's story. It's a story for all of us. And what it's about is society and about how society is very often corrupt. It's quite cruel to people who are the most needy. And no, Michael, don't just tell that story as if it's for, for little kids and talk down to them. Make that, that man who's washed up on a beach not be a sailor from the 18th century with a sort of funny hat and sort of buckled boots and breeches. Make it a migrant of today, an asylum seeker of today, washed up on a beach. But it's Lilliput and the little people are there. And so it's Son of Gulliver. And I wanted to find out, really, through this story, how that island was changed by the first Gulliver who went there, what this migrant thinks of it all, how he deals with it, and all sorts of... One, as soon as I decided to do this, I was in a bookshop in Paris, and I'll tell you what I discovered. It's where my granddaughter works. I told you grandchildren are useful for this, that, and the other. <laughs> and they give you a badge. If you buy a book, they give you a little badge. And written on this badge, on this bookshop called Shakespeare & Co. in Paris, was this. Be not inhospitable to strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. And I thought, that is a lesson for me and for all of us. And it's exactly what I was thinking about migrants, that these are people. They shouldn't be called migrants or asylum seekers. They're people. They're young people very often with nowhere to go and no one to look after them. So, like it or not, we have to look after them and should want to look after them. They're our fellow human beings and they need us. And so that's why I wrote the story. It's partly that badge, partly Gulliver's Travels, and partly because I've become very connected to these people who have so little in the world. And all they're looking for is safety from bombs, uh, enough to eat, family, home, all the things that you and I take for granted and they can't have. So I thought, write the story. And so you did. And as I say, it's it's beautiful and it is hopeful. And I, I would really love it, Michael, if you would read a little of it for us so that everyone listening can, can have a taste of what the book is about. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pause the recording for a moment while you get your book and find your place. And anyone who does happen to have the book in the classroom at the moment, Michael's going to read chapter seven. So if you find chapter seven, then you can follow along the reading as well. So I'll press pause and then we'll be right back and hear from the boy giant.
Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with my hero, Michael Morpurgo. Michael, you're going to read to us now from your book, Boy Giant, Son of Gulliver. Could you perhaps tell us just a little bit about what's going on in the story so that our listeners can put themselves in the picture? Yes. Well, the story begins with this strange man. We don't really know who he is to start with. It's a story told by him later. It's rather awkward, this, because it, once, you, once you come away from the beginning, you've got to almost retell the whole thing, but I won't. He's telling this story, this is strange, to a girl of about 19, 20, and he's in a rowing boat, and bizarrely, he has on his shoulders two little Lilliputians, and he's been living on this island of Lilliput for the past five years. And he's been rescued from a sinking boat of his own by a rower, and he's telling the girl in this boat who's rescued them his own story. And here's the moment when he's on the, the beach when he's first landed. He's got all these people crawling over him, but has suddenly realised that there is one person who is kind of the chief. And what's really interesting, and I like this, she is the island's storyteller. She holds in her head the story of Gulliver, the first Gulliver. And there is this presumption that this man washed up, because Gulliver always said when he left the island... 200 and something years before, that he would come back, and if he couldn't come back, then his son would come back. And here's this man, and they all think it's son of Gulliver. So what I'm going to do, if I may, is just before I get to the chapter I was supposed to read, I was just going to read the last couple of paragraphs of the one before. Is that all right? That makes perfect sense. There's this old lady then, standing on his hand. She said nothing for a while, but was looking at me long and hard. Then she reached out and took my finger gently drawing my hand towards her so that she and her companion could step up onto it. Once they were balanced, I lifted them up very carefully, keeping my hand steady so that they would not fall over. We were face to face now. The crowd had fallen quite silent. The old lady and her companion were standing side by side in the palm of my hand. There was no fear in their eyes, only intense curiosity. Beckoning me closer, she reached out her hand to touch my face. Then she was brushing the hair away from my forehead. A sudden smile came over her. Not Gulliver, she said softly. Son of Gulliver. Then she turned and proclaimed it out loud to the crowd. Son of Gulliver. He is son of Gulliver. There was a gasp of amazement at this from all around. So now I was a son of this Gulliver. And I knew what son meant. One of the aid workers in the refugee camp, Jimbo he was called, had shown me photographs on his phone of a boy about my age, obviously his son, holding a cricket bat. He liked cricket too, and Jimbo was the one who used to call me son. Hello, son, he'd say to me sometimes. You're right, son. So now I was son of Gulliver. I could think of nothing else to do but look as pleased as the old lady was, as her companion was, as everyone seemed to be. I called out, son of Gulliver, son of Gulliver. How's that? The old lady seemed happy with that. They all were. So I thought I must have said the right thing. From then on, that's who I was to these people. Son of Gulliver. But the children usually preferred to call me Auzat. I still don't understand who Gulliver was, nor why I should be his son. That and everything else about this strange place, which had to be England, I was sure of it by now, was still a complete mystery to me. But I did not mind this, nor how confusing and strange everything was. Another confusion was the language they spoke. I had already heard many of them speaking amongst themselves in another language that did not sound at all like English. So they must speak in two languages. Strange again, but 
What did it matter? All I knew was that I was amongst people who were kind, and I was safe. What else could matter? But something else did matter. I was suddenly feeling weak with hunger, and I was dying of thirst. Chapter 7. The Whole World. It was as if the lady could read my mind. At that very moment, she clapped her hands, and at once everyone seemed to know exactly what to do. Within moments, they were all fetching and carrying. All the horses and carts on the beach were on the move, and the little people, children too, were busily unloading them. They reminded me of the armies of ants on the march that I'd often watched back at home in my town. Every one of these little people seemed to have a task to do, and they all understood their part in it. The task, I was very pleased to see, was to bring me all the food and water I could ever have wanted. Once I had lowered the old lady and her companion down onto the sand again, I watched as the little people brought me fish and bread and grapes and nuts, all I could eat, and some berries, and then some water, which came in barrels too. A barrel of water was no more than a mouthful to me, but there were lots of barrels, and they kept coming, and I kept drinking. They came and laid at my feet all the food and drink I needed, and I needed a great deal. They never once tired, and every one of them would say something in greeting as they presented me with yet another gift of some fish or a grape or a barrel of water. Hello, son of Gulliver, or how's that, or welcome. I saw such a kindness and open-hearted generosity in their eyes. I could not help thinking what a difference this was from the other world I had left behind me, from the world of suffering and sadness, from the ruined town that had once been my home, from the family and friends I had lost from the sprawling refugee camp where we had had to live. How strange it was to be surrounded now by all this warmth and loving care and attention. How I wished mother and Hanan and father could be here with me to see how good and kind people could be. I thought then of mother standing there on the shore watching me leave in that overcrowded boat and my mind went back to the terrible journey across the sea, the fear that had gripped my heart, the cold in my bones, the endless skies, the endless sea and the frantic efforts we had made to save ourselves, to bail that water out from the bottom of the boat, cupping our frozen hands and scooping out what we could but watching helpless and as the waves came again over the side, how the boat had sunk lower and lower into the water, and how one by one the others who had been with me were no longer there, how I had been left on my own, lying in the cold of the water for days and nights on end, praying to be saved, calling out for mother, and keeping her last words in my head, the words she told me never to forget. Four Street, Mevergissi, Four Street, Mevergissi. Without my meaning to, these words spoke themselves out loud again on the beach in front of all the little people. Four Street, Mevergissi, Four Street, Mevergissi. I began to cry then. Whether in grief or relief or joy, I did not know. I do know that many a little hand reached and tried to comfort me. And I remember that brought me such joy and helped drive away my sorrows and in time stop my tears. I had food and drink and hundreds of little friends, I thought. What more could I need? I was safe with these little people, safe at last, and for some reason, much loved too. And that meant the world to me, the whole world. I don't want you to stop. <laughs> I want you to carry on and read the rest of it to me, please. We'd be here a long time, Helen, a long time. Oh, we would. Okay, maybe maybe another time. That that was beautiful, Michael. And, and to me, that chapter, it, it's almost like a, a microcosm of the whole book. In just a few pages, you have all the toughness and harshness of the world put against 
just how kind and welcoming people can be and, and how when that happens, the toughness of the world retreats a little. And it, it's, just, it's just such an important thing to say. Do you think that it's your job as an author to put good messages out in the world? Um, what's good? Hmm. I think your job as an author is, it really is to look young people, for writing for young people, which I do, you have to look them in the eye in your stories and tell it as you feel it. Tell it as you think it is. That's the most important thing, not to pretend. And I happen, not because I'm a good person, I'm a human person, I happen to have sympathies for those people who have very little. Most of us are like that, actually. Much more kindness in our hearts than I think we are led to believe. Um, we, we hear the bad news all the time, all the time, all the time. But actually, there's people out there. You know, we're going through this pandemic at the moment. And millions of people in this country are actually spending their, their days, their nights, looking after other people, looking after other people, which is what has always gone on. But it's a quiet, it's a quiet thing. Hardly anyone sees it. It's a private thing. Um, when you're a storyteller, it becomes not private. I want to share, most certainly, what I feel about the world, not because I think it's the only solution, Although I think kindness is probably, and education, if you put kindness together with education and you intertwine the two, I think what you're likely to do is to help to create a society where people do care more for each other and do think more about each other. So that deep down, that is what I, I believe, there's no doubt. And that will come out in my books, whether I, I, I like it or not. I wanted to ask you, I, I think it's fair to say, Michael, you've been writing books for quite a long time now. Do you think... You are a better writer now than you were 10, 20 years ago? Generally speaking, I'll tell you what does happen. I think as a writer, to start with, I think it's, it's about confidence. You feel you can only write about what, what is sort of right in front of you. So when I was a teacher and I started writing, I wrote my stories mostly about either the lives of our own children at home or the children I was teaching at school. In other words, I kept the boundaries of what I writing and was writing about very close. That was the world that I knew, and that was the world that I wrote about. And I enjoyed it, and it worked. I knew it worked because I'd already told one or two of these stories out loud to the year six class that I was teaching. I would test it out on these poor children. And actually, that was quite a good idea because it, it gave me confidence. When you see 35 children sitting and listening to a story, and you've written it, you really do think, eat your heart out, roll doll. You, you can do this stuff. <laughs> You get this terrific sense of confidence. You can do it. And of course, the truth is, anyone can do it. We all tell stories. And you know who the best storytellers are? Children. Are they not the best liars in the world? They lie much better than grown-up people do. Grown-up people think about their lies too much and they get muddled. Children just come. I don't you remember that. When I was young, I remember sitting on a train. This is absolutely true. Telling a lie which convinced me, aged eight coming back from boarding school. It was my Hogwarts somewhere out there in Sussex. <laughs> and I was on this train. There was 10 of us in the carriage, a steam train. I promise you, I was in a steam train. And it was, <laughs> I should have written Harry Potter. I came to a school like that and went to a... Anyway, I was in this train. And coming home at the end of a long, long term, we hadn't seen your mummy, hadn't seen your dad. You were just longing for holidays, holidays, holidays. We were sitting here, all these boys, and we were just talking, talking, talking. And they were all saying, I'm going to France, I'm going to France, I'm going to Scotland. And they were all boasting about where they were going. And I wasn't going anywhere, I knew I wasn't. But I didn't want to say that. So I, did, I, did, I do not know why I did this. I just looked around the carriage, there was a bit of a silence, and I said, well, I looked at my little Timex watch, and I said, I really... I really want the train to be on time because the Queen's coming for tea at 4.30. <laughs> and I looked up around the carriage and I promise you, 
there were all these faces, which is wonderful. So reading a story to kids in class all those years later, and you realize they believe the story. And believing in the story is so important. They felt they were in the story as I was telling it. So I thought I could do this stuff. But to answer your question, as I've got older, I think because I found the world more challenging, I've, I've lived longer, I've known lots of joys and lots of sadnesses, and I see the world more for what it is and rather than what I hoped it might be. I write about things that I suppose are that much more complex and I don't think it matters. I've grown as a writer. And in fact, I think now, I don't know, I think probably now I, in this pandemic when I, you know, like everyone else, you, you, you've been thrown back on yourself. You have to do a lot of hard thinking because you've got time and you're not rushing around. Your priorities changing. For me, the priorities are really what I, when I go for my walk every day, will I see a buzzard up in the field again? Will I see a kingfisher down by the river? And I just spend much, much more time looking and listening and above all, feeling, just feeling how you are rather than just rushing through the day to the next excitement, the next... And you learn, I've learned to calm down. And I think we've all have learned. We haven't got a choice. It's not as if we've actually made a wise decision. It just is how we've got to be if we're going to get through this stuff. And because of that, I've written some things which I think are much more thoughtful and not say profound, but they're more and more what I feel as a 77-year-old man living through these strange times that we're all going through and trying to find myself more at one with the world about me, really. And that seems to be happening. So I think uh, my writing has got uh, richer, better, deeper. But it's really not for me to judge. That's for you to judge. (laughs) Okay, well, ironically, given the talk of, of us having more time and not having to rush about quite so much, time is starting to run out for us on this podcast, unfortunately. But I know there is something else that you want to share with our listeners, and, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. So before we take a pause, I just want to remind all the parents and teachers who are listening that we do produce a special free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom, so children can can take what they hear and think it over and feed it into their own writing. So you can find those packs at plazoom.com and details are in the episode notes as usual. Michael, I'm just going to press pause again and then um, we'll come back and you can share with us what it is you'd like to share. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with the literary giant and the author of Boy Giant. Do you see what I did there? Michael Morpurgo. Michael, I know there's another piece of writing that you would like to share for our listeners. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Well, because, um, like all of us, I've been uh, shut down at home. In March, I was shut down. We were all shut down. Um, We all had different little places we were shut down in, didn't we? Because that's our home. It could be a flat and you really couldn't go anywhere. And in my case, I was lucky. I'm in the middle of the countryside in the garden. And here's what I would do every morning. I would get up about half past seven, and I'd just walk across the garden and pick some kale to make a smoothie. This is because it's supposed to be very good for you, and I knew it was very important <laughs> to stay well, and my wife was encouraging me to eat better, so I was making a smoothie every morning of kale. But here's the thing. It's before breakfast. I'm the one who gets breakfast. So what I do is I, I'm in my nightshirt. Imagine this, if you will, if it's not too horrible. <laughs> I'm in my nightshirt. I go to the door 
I put on my wellies. So you've got wellies and nightshirt. That's quite funny. Um, coat if it's freezing. Just walk around the corner and there's the vegetable garden. And I was just picking some kale one morning. And I suddenly heard this bird singing. And there was this blackbird on a tree. Just singing, singing, singing. And I listened and it was beautiful. And it was this moment of when he was definitely, I don't think he was telling me to go away. I think he was talking to me in some way or other. That's what I felt anyway. So I picked a bit more kale. And he was still singing, still singing. Then I came back the next morning and he was waiting for me, singing again. And it went on like this. And finally, finally, I thought, well, sing back. Well, I didn't want to sing, did I? So I sort of whistled back and I imitated his call to me. He loved that. And he imitated it back. We were having this conversation. And I loved it. I loved this. I know it sounds odd. You don't talk to birds, generally speaking. But this wasn't a generally speaking time. It was an odd time. And I felt very close to this little bird. And I was walking away back into the house and I thought, I'm going to write a story about that bird. But I want to make write a story that somehow opens my world up. I want this to take me all over the world, this story. I want the blackbird to be part of this. So I wrote this story and I called it A Song of Gladness. I've been talking every morning to Blackbird, telling him why we are all so sad. He sits on his branch and listens. It was Blackbird's idea. He sang out this morning at dawn from his treetop in the garden to Fox, half asleep behind the garden shed. She thought it a good idea too. It was a wake-up call. Fox was on her feet at once and trotting through Bluebell Wood, where she barked it to deer, who ran off across the stream. Kingfisher was there, otter and dipper too. They heard and piped it on, and Swallow swooped down over the meadow and passed it on to cows, waiting to go into their milking, and to sheep resting quietly under the hedge with her lambs in the corner of the dew-damp field. And they all agreed, bleating it out to bees already busy at their flowers, to weaving spiders and grasshoppers and scurrying mice. Trees heard sheep calling too, the whole flock of them, and waved their budding leaves in wild enthusiasm. High above, in the skies, clouds gathered, driven by wind, and wind took Blackbird's idea over the cliffs across heaving seas, where gulls and albatross cried it out, and whales and dolphins and porpoises heard it and wailed and whooped it down into the deep where turtles listened. And they too loved the idea. So did plankton, and every fish and crab and sea urchin and whelk. They all whispered that it was a fine notion, the best they had ever heard. In rivers and streams, salmon and sea trout leapt for joy to hear of it. Eagles, soaring above on wide wings, flew over the mountains, crying it out loud, so loud their echoes were heard, deep down in the dens below, where slumbering bears listened, lost in their dreams of spring, and snored and grunted their approval. Snows melted at the very thought of it, and the whole wonderful idea flooded down the mountain streams and far out to sea where the tide took it and carried it over the sea on curling waves to distant shores to parched plains where lions roared their approval and elephants trumpeted it, leopards yawned it, water buffalo belched it, wild dogs yelped it, and wildebeest 
murmured it out across the savannah. Then storm lifted the idea up over rainforests, where rain took it and poured it down on gorillas in the mist, on chimpanzees in their sleeping nests, and crocodile swished his tail in his swamp and clapped his great jaw shut, smiling at the very thought of it. Howler monkeys and gibbons echoed their calls loud over all the earth. They are that loud, and then from far up high, sun heard it too and shone it down over deserts where Oryx stamped her foot, impatient to be getting on with it and doing it. She loved the idea that much. Even Camel, who rarely joined in anything, thought this was the best and most beautiful idea he had ever heard. Back in the garden, Blackbird waited until everyone was ready, and then he began to sing. And the whole carnival of animals, every living thing on this good earth, joined in until the globe echoed with the joy of it and Blackbird was very pleased. But I was still lost in sadness as I heard the earth singing around me. It was a song of forgiveness. I knew that. So I asked Blackbird if I was allowed to join in, and he sang his answer back to me. <laughs> Why do you think we are doing this, you silly man? We want you and yours to be happy again. Only then will you treat us and the world right again, as you know you should. Only then will all be well. Sing, silly man. Sing. Sing our song is your song. Your song is our song. So I sang. We all sang. Sang away our sadness. In every house and flat and cottage, we clapped and sang. In every shelter and tent, in every school, in every palace and hospital and prison, and they heard. And we heard our song of gladness echoing about us in glorious harmony across the universe. Michael, thank you. That's, that was so beautiful and so important. Thank you for, for sharing it with us. Thank you for all the wonderful things that you've written, for the work that you do with Farms for City Children, and, of course, for being our guest for this episode of Author in Your Classroom. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And if I can say as a last thing to the children, listen, read a lot, write a lot, think a lot. Don't go and pick kale. You may not have anything outside. <laughs> but when you see a black, when you see your next blackbird or your next swallow, sing back to it because we need to keep in touch now with each other and with the world around us and with all the creatures that we live with. It's an important time for all of us. I wish you happiness. I wish you joy in the middle of all this stuff. We're going to get through it and out the other side and all will be well. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks for being here. We'll be back soon with more brilliant writers sharing their stories and, and their advice and their joy and their thankfulness with us. So do subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATs revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.